This is the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. My name is Ansel Lindner, and I'm keeping you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin. All right, Bitcoiners, welcome back to the show. So this is going to be part four of my case for deflation. I'm going to be going over liquidity and repo. During this episode, I want to uh, tie these things back into the case for deflation. Um, you probably know what liquidity and the repo market, <laughs> what these things are. Uh, but I will add my interpretation, hopefully get you guys a clearer image of what's happening. And, you know, we're going beyond the Burr meme on this show and we're diving into some of the fundamentals here. So don't forget, listener supported podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and markets and you can keep this content coming, keep the contrarian takes rolling. All right. So what is liquidity? Well, the textbook definition is the ability to sell an asset quickly sell an asset at a stable price. So if you have a hundred chickens um, and you want to sell all those chickens, hopefully you can get a stable price for them because the demand, the aggregate demand or the overall demand in the market is much higher. And so your um, selling of your quantity of chickens isn't going to affect the overall price. Now, if that's not the case and say there's only 50 chickens demanded in the market, then you wouldn't be able to sell your chickens quickly um, or at a stable price. So this would be asset liquidity, is the, the ability to quickly sell that asset at a stable price. Um, there's also other types of liquidity here. Um, so you have, I'm calling this entity liquidity, or you could call it uh, portfolio liquidity. And that is the amount of cash in a portfolio, or how quickly you can liquidate your um, holdings in your portfolio. Cash, of course, would be the most liquid good, um, and other goods will have a certain amount of liquidity relative to cash. Um, this could be banks, it could be businesses, it could be individuals and their portfolio liquidity. So if you have a, a portfolio of all cash, it is the most liquid portfolio possible. If you um, have a portfolio full of real estate, then it might not be as liquid most of the time, but sometimes it's going to be way worse and you can't sell it really for almost any price. All right. The third type of liquidity I want to talk about here, and I think this is where we need to concentrate, is market liquidity. It's an overall broad statement. Um, and what it means is the flow of money through the economy. So if the economy is functioning well, money is flowing with very little friction, that would be a liquid market. If the market uh, has lots of friction, there's impediments to the movement of cash, either people are hoarding cash or something, then the liquidity of the market is going down. This is a measure of flow. You could also say velocity. Velocity of money kind of measures the flow of money through the economy. Now remember, Liquidity in this respect here, liquidity is two-way. So pretty much no matter which type of liquidity we're talking about, is uh, you have um, three things that are necessary for liquidity. One party needs cash. The other party to the trade needs something to trade for the cash. And then the third thing is the person with the cash needs to have demand for the other good. Technically, we would say that the product or service side of this exchange would also need demand for cash. But since cash is the most liquid good, it's the most demanded and most saleable good in the economy, then 
um, we assume that they have demand for cash. But the cash side of the equation here doesn't necessarily have demand for what they're selling. And so you need all three of these things. You can have problems in any one of these three areas. You could have a lack of cash or there's something that's not demanded to trade. Let's take a look at what's going on here with the Fed in regards to this idea of liquidity because we hear that the Fed is injecting liquidity into the marketplace by injecting cash. I mean, let's just assume for the time being that this is actual cash injections, which I kind of disagree with here, but uh, let's just for argument's sake say that they're injecting cash into the market. Well, that isn't necessarily increasing flow, right? That's increasing portfolio liquidity, but it's not increasing the market flow. And so they are not really addressing this. Um, it's actually counterproductive in some ways, but we will get to that. So when the Fed injects, quote unquote, injects cash, they uh, are trying to have like a synthetic flow or uh, simulate flow in the economy. Um, and it makes it kind of, they're, they're interpreting the lack of flow and the lack of velocity. They're interpreting this as a dollar shortage. Um, and maybe they're not. And that that's a little piece that we can maybe talk about here at the end. The only thing you can do to get more flow is confidence, confidence, confidence. And, oh, the Fed has our back, right? Don't fight the Fed. These are just slogans to um, instill confidence in this, this church of the Fed. Everybody is in the church of the Fed and the church of the federal, or the federal government as well, because, you know, especially this, the whole virus situation really highlighted the amount that people are willing to sacrifice for their beliefs in this thing called government. There's very few anarchists out there that are willing to say, think for yourself and be responsible for yourself. Most people, they, they believe in this institution called government and they will do what they, they're told um, because it's a, it's a religious organization. Same with the Fed. It's a religious organization. And it depends on our confidence, our belief in the myth that the Fed has our back and the Fed can control these things. But in reality, they're just manipulating. They, they, they rely on manipulation of <laughs> the emotions of the market. Um, intervention, Fed intervention actually makes things worse. And even if they have pure belief in the system here, um, they still can make things worse. And the way that's, this is happening, the way they're actually impairing liquidity more by stepping in and quote-unquote injecting cash is that they do so anonymously. So in a normal, robust market that isn't fragile, you will have one bank or one hedge fund or somebody that's short of cash, and they're going to go insolvent. They really need that cash badly, but they can't access it because they're being discriminated against in the money markets. No one wants to lend them money because they're a bad credit risk. That company goes bust. Now, maybe their portfolio, let's say, is $100 billion, and only $1 billion is impaired, like is bad. But they have to go to the Fed to get a bailout of that $1 billion, you know, the buyer of last resort being the Fed. The problem there is that if that's reported to the wider market that they had to go to the Fed, no one else would lend to them then it would be a self-fulfilling type of thing. No one would lend to them at all, not just for that collateral, but for anything that they're trying to sell. 
So what the Fed has done is make it anonymous. So you can go to these, um, the repo desk that the Fed has set up, which we'll talk about here in a second, how that works. Um, but these distressed businesses can go to the Fed and get this money. But since it's anonymous, they think, oh, we're, we're going to help the stigma attached to this. Well, really what happens is that stigma is just expanded to the entire market because people know somebody's going, somebody's distressed out there, somebody is in trouble, but they can't point a finger at it. So they have to treat everybody like that. So by these, these actions of the Fed is actually making the flow worse. It's, it's they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't because if they don't, that business fails and anybody that's connected to them fails like dominoes. But if they try to make it anonymous, then it stops the flow everywhere. It's a tangled web, see. When you intervene in the market, you have unintended consequences. And the unintended consequence here is this tangled web of a no-win situation. You cannot win this situation by intervening. So the only way to win this is to let people fail. And it's going to be dramatic. It's going to be painful. Everybody is going to be affected, but that's what has to happen to get the natural flow of the market back up. I mean, time can kind of heal all wounds in a way, but we will never return to previous growth rates. And that's what I've said past episodes, I think, maybe in past interviews, is that, you know, like a typical global growth rate might be 5 to 10% per year. Uh, but after the financial crisis, it was like four or five percent, you know, getting down there. Um, China was slowing down. Other growth emerging markets were slowing down. And now after this, it's going to be one percent, maybe. We would just barely struggle to make any growth. And that's what happens. And it will continue on. We'll stagnate until eventually, you know, continues to press towards zero and below zero on growth. And when GDP globally is contracting, People won't stand up for it. We'll have revolutions. We'll have uh, uprisings and, and things like that because people will be suffering. When that happens, we're going to have to transition to a new system. So the only way to cure this is to get rid of the system, let people fail, bring on the pain, short-term pain. You might have a year or two of very dramatic pain in the world economically, and then we'll be over it with a new system. Whether that's Bitcoin or gold, we'll we'll have to wait and see. I'm hoping it's Bitcoin, but, you know, we'll see. Anyway, so let's go on to, well, I want to circle back real quick to this dollar shortage thing because um, we don't have a dollar shortage. There's plenty of reserves in the system. There's plenty of cash in the system, um, but it's not being lent out. The Fed is the only person that will lend. They're calling it a dollar shortage. Um, either because they're interpreting this as a dollar shortage at, wrongly, or they're, they, they know exactly what's going on. They say it's a dollar shortage. So when they do inject cash, then people are fooled. And people will think that the Fed has their back, right? Oh, how does the Fed have your back? Oh, we're injecting cash because there's a dollar shortage. So we're solving the dollar shortage. That's the problem. It's a Hegelian dialectic. They say this is a dollar shortage. So that they can pump in cash and people believe it. But slowly, we're trying. We're starting to lose confidence in the Fed. We're starting to lose confidence in our institutions. And 
it has diminishing returns, right? How do we know it's not a dollar shortage? Because there's plenty of dollars out there. There's plenty of dollars out there. Okay. Let's go into the repo market. Now, you guys probably have learned quite a bit about this over the last six months or so. Um, maybe longer. I don't know. But a lot of people's attention went on to the repo market around September. Um, it's crazy. It's a crazy world out there. So what is the repo market? It is It's a global market for short-term secured loans. How short? Well, most of the volume is under a month in term. So this would be overnight to one week, two week terms. Okay. But there's uh, most of the outstanding or the open interest um, is longer than a month. So probably between one and three months. It's three months or shorter. Most of the volume is overnight or one week, something like that. So these are short term loans. And the Secured piece means that there is collateral involved. So you have to post collateral to get your cash. Um, now, this compares to the euro dollar money market in that the euro dollar system would be unsecured, just regular loans out there. So that's kind of the difference. Uh, okay, so the, the repo market is not geographically located. I mean, there's concentration of this activity in London and New York, probably Tokyo, maybe Singapore, Hong Kong, but um, it's not geographically located really. It just, it can happen over a phone line to between banker A and banker B and they need to do a repo. So they can do that. I mean, there's laws, quote unquote laws that uh, regulate this in different jurisdictions. Um, each jurisdiction is slightly different. And if there is a problem, you can, uh, you could go to court or there would be an arbitration involved. Um, but uh, it's not geographically located, all right? When the Fed is, you might have heard the Fed set up this repo facility where they do all these uh, overnight loan operations. Well, they're not like taking over the market. It's not like they took over the New York Stock Exchange or the repo exchange. They, there is no such thing. They just are out there with the desk. So bankers can call them. Banker A can call the Fed instead of Banker B. Um, the Fed has said that they will, they will offer up to a trillion dollars overnight loans. Well, overnight and some term in there. But that's still not like a huge percentage of the, of this overall repo market. We don't know the total size, but it's at least five trillion every night in volume, probably upwards of 10. At the peak, it might have been 15, but it's come down over the last 10 years. The, the amount of this these repo operations going on globally. Uh, so the Fed is roughly 10%, maybe. And, you know, even they're not even doing a trillion. They, they're offering a trillion. But I think the average is like 50 to 100 billion a night. So it's, it's not that much. But just the fact, remember, this is the stigma that they're expanding to the entire market. Just the fact that they're doing they're having to do some repos means that something is wrong. Somebody's in trouble out there. And so everyone else is a little bit skittish. And it's just waiting, most likely at the end of the quarters, these, you know, the balance sheet stuff usually um, comes to a head at the end of quarters. And so I think around the end of the quarters there is when we're going to see some major moves, um, major things snapping and breaking in the market. One interesting thing I think about these repo markets um, is it goes back to a point that I brought up previously about what is money? What, what is functioning as money? Because 
It's not the, the balance sheet at the Fed, right? The, the Fed can create money, but so can commercial banks when they make loans. Uh, so the, the money supply is not the Fed's balance sheet. Um, and we can even expand that globally. So banks around the world create dollar-denominated loans. So what is the money supply? We don't know. All these things are treated as money substitutes in my mind. We don't have money. We have just money substitutes or substitutes of substitutes. So these, this repo market kind of uh, can turn a treasury or uh, a high-quality corporate bond, some, something of that nature, into money. So those things serve as like a money substitute in a way uh, because it can, it's almost like a claim on the money itself. Which is, the, which is the substitute. It's it's confusing, but we don't know what money is, and it's very hard to pin it down, like what the supply is. So now, when we're talking about inflation versus deflation, which again is expansion or contraction of the money supply, um, if all of these things are money substitutes, they're treated as money substitutes. They act like money substitutes, and then there's some illiquid event, like uh, that happened back in September when the repo market basically froze then all of that stuff that like the collateral that was treated as an acting like money substitute now isn't so the money disappears from the market this is a deflationary shock overnight boom deflation probably 50% 50% deflation overnight that's what i'm talking about when, when we talk about like why is this deflation going to happen because the system is set up to drastically reduce the money supply to contract the money supply what else do i have on this yeah so i would just concentrate on some of these definitions um liquidity we're talking about flow and the fed in injecting cash cannot increase flow because the overall market is slowing down deflation is what we're worried about here and spreading of the fed stigma to bring full confidence back we can bring some confidence back through time healing all wounds but you can't get it back to 100 percent. you're gonna every time you're gonna shrink a little bit until we get rid of this system which hopefully is coming up soon yeah Last thing I'll say here on this is that, see, this is where I think Bitcoin has a very big role to play in the coming years. Um, I hope we will see some major moves towards Bitcoin becoming collateral, um, Bitcoin moving into this market and uh, making waves. Uh, it just can't yet. It's too small. Um, you need collateral worth, say, a billion dollars. And you just can't do that with a hundred billion dollar market cap. Now, if it's a hundred, if it's a trillion or ten trillion dollar market cap, yes, sure, you can have these um, five hundred million or billion dollar pieces of collateral um, amounts of Bitcoin that can stand in. So once Bitcoin grows, it will act more and more like collateral. And I hope we can start seeing some growth in this this vector here. Anyway, that's it for this episode. This is episode. 214 so you can find it on the website bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash e214 for the show notes i did link a bunch of stuff more reading about the repo market uh, some a really great website i found 
that has a lot of it's it's European centric, but it explains a lot of different things about what's going on in the repo market and how it works, like how baskets of collateral work, how different the legalese that goes on there. Um, so it's a very good place. And I, I did also link a paper about the Fed stigma or the stigma attached to the discount window and why they kind of have gone more anonymous. So that's a good read as well. Check that out in the show notes. So I hope you guys learned a little bit about um, liquidity and how this market is, um, why this market is tending towards deflation. You learned a little bit about the repo market and how that whole thing works. Um, if you have questions, hit me up on Twitter, Discord. I will try to get to those in a future episode. I think this might be the last part. I don't know if anything else needs to be said on this subject. I want to kind of get back to addressing the news in Bitcoin specifically uh, on future episodes. But thanks for going on this four-part series with me. We'll see you guys next time. <music>